Bye, Mr. Riley. Thanks to the praise team for leading us in worship this morning and for Lynn and Jesse and Vance likewise in our, our hymns that we sang. One of my favorites uh, by William Cowper that we sang this morning. Cowper, Cooper, some people pronounce it that. But uh, It's good to see you in the Lord's house this morning and Perhaps for those of you that are listening and watching via the internet along with our congregation, turn with me to begin with to Psalm 81. I trust that you have your Bibles this morning. We're going to be all over the Bible today. This is an introduction and there's quite a bit of, of a number of passages rather that uh, we need to examine. Um, so I want to begin in Psalm 81. Now this is a uh, this is a unique passage of Scripture, and we will probably, as we close out the message in a week or so, we will come back to Psalm 81, but it sets the preface, and we're going to begin to examine Old Testament worship this morning and then spend a little bit of time in John 4, but not a great deal. In Psalm 81, in verse 7, uh, this is a psalm of Asaph, who um, came after David, okay? You called in trouble, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you listen to me, there shall be no foreign god among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. Now go to John chapter 4. Quite a bit here, one of the better-known chapters in the Gospel of John. Now, Israel, at the time Asaph wrote that psalm, was known in the New Testament as Samaria. So keep that in mind. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria, we find that I think six times in this passage. The woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you being a Jew, you're from Judah. 
How is it that you, being a Jew, ask of me a drink, a Samaritan woman? The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock. And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become to, uh, in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw, nor come here to work. Save me from all this labor. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you speak truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for, salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am, and the word he is italics, which means it was added to the translation. Jesus is referencing the I am of Exodus chapter 3, which this woman would have been aware of, even though she's a Samaritan, and certainly the Jews. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, bless, I pray the word. We thank you for opportunity we've had to pray and to sing and to give. And so reveal to us Jesus Christ and remind us that there is an instruction from your word as to how we are to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First slide, Brother Jeff. So a few weeks ago we started looking at the controversial Christ, Advent messages, and of course now we're the last Sunday of uh, January. But we've examined the world interrupted. We've talked about authority. We've looked at the words interrogation. We've examined truth. Last week we completed the message on the words initiative, which is salvation, the centrality of the cross. And this morning we're going to begin to look at instructive worship of the incarnate Christ as we address what God expects from our worship. So the world was interrupted and interrogated 
by the incarnate Christ to address controversies in Jesus' day, which still exist today. The intolerance of tolerance toward authority, the challenges of fidelity to the Word of God, which is truth, within the church. And these two, authority and truth, would be answered by the living words, authority and truth, which is initiated by the centrality of the cross in salvation. So that, there's a purpose to all of this, so that professing believers would learn, we don't know it automatically, would learn how to worship, to live truth, not just believe truth. The devils believe truth, but obviously they don't live truth. Christ is a babe incarnate in the cradle was so that our salvation would be won by his vicarious death, his suffering death, his substitutionary death on Calvary's cross. And that is always central to our faith. What follows our salvation? Now, remember we spent some time, the word salvation means a return to home, a safe return to home. What follows our salvation is a lifetime of true worship. And not just on the Lord's Day, although that is uh, of primary importance which is the highest and the noblest activity of which believers, unbelievers don't worship. They feign worship, and we'll see that this morning. But believers, the highest and noblest activity of our lives is the worship that God desires. He is seeking true worshipers. So that immediately teaches us that there are false worshipers. And that was the controversy of Jesus as he met with a Samaritan woman. Next slide. So when we think about instructive worship, and we've read two passages, Psalm 81, portion of Psalm 80. 81 and a portion of John chapter 4. It brings us back to Westminster Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, and many of the, of the Baptist uh, Statement of Faith have this as well. Well, the Catechism is you ask a question and then there's an answer. So the question, number one, is what is the chief end of man? You've heard me say this probably hundreds of times. Man's chief end is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and we will today, but if we go all the way back there, we will find it. And to enjoy him forever. Second question. What rule hath God given to direct us how that we may glorify and enjoy him? The answer to that is the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule. To direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. And spent some time over the past couple of weeks talking about the 
the uh, discrepancies of sin in our mind and in our character. That's why we have to go to God's revelation. Third question. What do the scriptures principally teach? Well, the answer is the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God. And what duty God requires of man. Now, the word man there would be anthropos, so that's men and women. Not only what we are to believe, but what God requires of us. He has shown you, O man, the book of Micah says, what is true and good and merciful and so forth. And we wouldn't know that naturally. Imagine for a moment that the Bible never existed and we are still on this earth and so we have no guide at all from the revelation of God. How would we know? So these three, these three that we've just, just listed for you, now this is a shorter catechism. Not quite, <laughs> you have the longer catechism, which is like 300 pages, but... So it's made clear in these two passages. We find it in Psalm 81, in verses 7 through 9. We read, read those. And in John 4, while you're there, look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And then, of course, Jesus in verses 21 through 24, which we have already read, but for the sake of understanding, he said... Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We know that we worship what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And so the second time Jesus said, you got to worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, how do we do that? And that's what the lady said. I know Messiah is coming who is called Christ. <laughs> when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said, I'm the Christ. <laughs> you need look no further. So this morning, if you're looking for the Christ, the anointed one of God, you need look no further than the Scriptures. Scripture declares that humanity is under God's authority under God's truth, and under God's call to salvation. We have an obligation then to fall under God's authority, to believe his truth, to become born again, and then to worship God as he's revealed himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, what kind of worship should we offer because Jesus said, we're seeking true worshipers. And is any form of worship acceptable to him? We live in a day and age when, there, and we're going to see it, we'll take some time in the Old Testament this morning, nothing has changed over mm, 2,700 years ago. People said they worshipped Jehovah and then they worshipped the Baals as well, making sure that no one was offended. 
And we live in a day and age like that today. Next slide. So scripture teaches us that not all modes of worship are acceptable. In fact, scripture says in just in many places, but here's a couple of them, actually three of them, where God says your worship is detestable to me. Not only is it unacceptable, but I will spew it out of my mouth. It's not what I desire. And therefore, it doesn't matter what you say. It's not what I desire. Isaiah, right out of the gate, chapter 1. Isaiah was a prophet from Judah, and he prophesied to Judah, to Judah and Benjamin, the two, uh, the, the two tribes that were below the Mason-Dixon line, so to speak. They were south of Israel, south of Samaria. So Isaiah wrote this, When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? To trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are trouble to me, and I am weary of bearing of them. So this was the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Amos. Amos was from Judah. But God selected him to go to Samaria, to the northern ten tribes of Israel, and prophesy to them. And he wrote this in chapter 5. I hate, this is the Lord speaking, I despise your feast days. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water, and righteousness like a mighty stream. And not to be outdone, Jesus quoted Isaiah 29 and verse 13 in Matthew chapter 15. And in verses 7 through 9, he again excoriates the Pharisees by saying, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you say it. These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me. False worship. Now they had the law, they had the ordinances, still false worship. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You think that's controversial? Oh, yeah, buddy, it was. In fact, next slide. So the disciples ask him, how can this be? And Jesus says, basically, that we have opportunity to change from an external display of our devotion 
two, one of the heart and soul. Worship is pervasive over the globe this morning. It's the Lord's Day. Estimated that uh, Christianity is uh, the largest faith or the largest religion around the globe. Estimated maybe three, three and a half billion people that are, they call themselves Christian around the globe. And so um, quite a lot of attempts at worship this morning. But similar to the Pharisees, most, not all obviously, but most worship God in the wrong way. They worship similar to what the Samaritans, the way the Samaritans worshiped, which we'll examine as we move through the message. As creatures, we are to honor God by offering him the devotion and glory he deserves. We're not to focus on self. When we come into the Lord's house, when we worship, it's, that is adoration of him, not of our needs, not of our illnesses. It's an adoration that is focused on him. By the way, the Lord knows our needs. He knows our illnesses, does not need to be reminded of them. Should we pray for them? Absolutely. But he certainly knows them. Now, worship is an English word that comes from a shortened English word, worship, worthy ship. If you go back and you read anything of uh, maritime uh, travel over the years, ancient maritimes, even as recent as, uh, as now, you'll have sailors that will tell you about specific ships and they will mention that was a worthy ship. I trusted my life to that ship. Worship. And what that does, or what the word does, it indicates that God or someone else or something, here it's a ship, other than him is worthy to be praised. That worship is, as John Stott wrote, the appropriate recognition of his absolute worth. So is that the way you worship the Lord? The appropriate recognition of his absolute worth. Worship means we come to him as creatures to honor him as creator. We come to him as sinners to honor him as savior. And we come to him as children of God to honor him as Father. And when we are born again, we come to him as servants to honor him as Lord. Creator, Savior, Father, Lord. When we pray, and I must confess I don't do this as often as I should, I should pray to my Creator, to my Redeemer, to my Father, to my Lord. Worship is not an optional activity. Well, I think I, f I feel like going to the Lord's house today, so I'll just go. No. Sometimes we don't feel like it. I understand that. Sometimes there are things that have occurred in our life, circumstances or illnesses or accidents or whatever that prevent us from doing that. But when we can, 
we need to be here. It's not an optional activity added to our distracted lifestyles. Does this distract you? I'm standing in line at a restaurant last night to pick up a, some food for Robbie and I. And there were about six of us that were in line to pick the, to pick the food up. Every one of them. Every one of them. Except me. Because I left my phone in the car. So there you go. Distracted lifestyles. When we have a distracted lifestyle, it also changes our timetables. Obviously, there are those that enjoy church and should because they're born again. Some pointing at people don't. They endure church. Or worship is, not, is sometimes ignored by those who do not. Do you think this woman here had been to the synagogue recently? <laughs> the answer is no, she had not been. How do you know that? Because she'd been married five times, she was living with a man. You think she's going somewhere where the Old Testament scriptures about adultery could be read? No. She avoided it. She ignored it. Yet Jesus and grace confronts her. Now Christ's use of the word hypocrite in Matthew 15 was due, uh, as I said, to the external acting out of devotion. In other words, they were not worshipers at all. They said they were, but they were not. Their worship was a pretense for their anger, and they were ultimately angry at God, and certainly angry at Jesus. Next slide. So, in Matthew 15, the, the verses following, then his disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you said this? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. This woman here in John 4 had been led by the blind, and she's blind. The Lord Jesus is there to open her eyes and her heart. Now let's take some time. We'll close this out this morning looking at some passages from the Old Testament, okay? So let's go all the way, all the way back to Genesis chapter. We'll start in chapter 3 and we'll look at a number of passages. Worship in the Old Testament. Chapter 3, of course, is the... Is the it's been called the saddest chapter in the Bible, and perhaps it is, because it is the, the promotion of sin as an idol of self. 
we know the story, of course. But the thing that I want to uh, focus on, the verse I want to focus on is in verse 21. Um, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So what's taking place here? The Lord, who is the giver of life, who is the creator of life, is the first one that kills. And death ensued. So Adam and Eve were created to worship the Trinity with their devotion and their work. They failed in two ways. They failed in their devotion because it was defamed by their sin. And their work then, because of sin, was no longer harmonious, it was laborious. We can all agree with that. We enjoy work. Some of us do. I hope all of you do. But at some point in time, it becomes laborious. It becomes a J-O-B. Why? Because our devotion is misdirected. So neither their devotion nor their work was then accepted to God, acceptable to God. Sorrow, pain, and death. God promised it in the latter part of chapter 3, and it came to pass. Replaced service, peace, and life. All because they sought to worship themselves other than Adonai, other than the Lord. The Imago Day was desecrated. Yet God provided a lamb, we see, or some animal. We're not sure. I have lamb here, but we're not sure, but probably a goat or a lamb. For them so that they might instruct their sons, Cain and Abel. And that's what we have in chapter 4. So let's read the first seven verses of chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. She bore again, this time a brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock of their fat, and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, just like the elder brother we talked about last week. And his countenance fell, his whole demeanor Change. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it, should control yourself and rule. Now, this is an admonition for works of which no man can accomplish, and so the remainder of the chapter has to do with the murder, obviously, of Abel. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. The Lord admonishes Cain about improper worship. 
And yet, instead of Cain changing, he gets mad. And he kills Abel in a fit of jealous rage because of his brother's proper worship. He's younger than I am. I'm the oldest brother. I know what's going on here. Cain offered his own type of worship. He assumed that God should accept it. Some of us here this morning think that too. Well, I'm going to worship this way, and God should accept my worship. It doesn't work that way. First of all, you need to know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. We can't worship in spirit and truth unless we have his spirit and follow his truth. Next slide, if you would. So, and previously, we saw in 321, there was a sacrifice, and uh, Cain never repented. He is pockmarked throughout Scripture. In fact, in Jude, verse 11, Jude says that there were those that sinned grievously and had gone the way of Cain, never repented. Turn over to Genesis 11. I'm not going to read this passage, but Genesis 11, the first nine verses, has to do with Babel. Uh, and look at verse 9, uh, verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. They were staying right there all together. They were attempting to build some huge uh, ziggurats, some huge pyramid, some huge tower to the heavens so that they may enjoy their pagan worship. And the Lord said no. Chapter 12. Now we have this beautiful story beginning in the latter part of chapter 11 into chapter 12. And this is the calling of Abram. Now Abram, as we studied before, is a moon worshiper. He was not someone seeking God. God sought him. God seeks those to worship him. Converted, travels from Ur to Canaan. And we find that in the first few verses here of um, chapter 12. Look at verses 7 through 9. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. And there he, Abram, built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Acceptable worship. He put moon worship behind him. He didn't hold on to superstition. He put it behind him. Look at Genesis 26. Isaac, following Abram's example. Look at verse 23. Then he, Isaac, went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham, 
Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he, Isaac, built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Okay? Thought that it could be Jacob's well, or similar to Jacob's well, there in the area of Sychar in John chapter 4. Turn over a couple of pages to Genesis 28. We have the story of Jacob. Verse 16, uh, Jacob falls asleep. He sees a ladder, and God reveals himself to him in verse 13. I'm the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, your father. Verse 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. He arose early in the morning. He took the stone he had put on his head, put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, and the name of the city had been where the name had been Luz previously. Make, he made a vow, if God will be with me and give me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing uh, to put on so that I may come back to my father's house in peace and the Lord shall be my God. Worshipped him according to the expectations of Yahweh. We know the rest of the story in the book of Genesis where Joseph is sold into slavery and where the Israeli people apparently, we're not told, but apparently they abandoned a great deal of their worship in the 400 years that they were enslaved. And so God calls Moses, just as he called Abram. Moses became the prophet of God. God gave him the law. And in the giving of the law, there is, that contains instruction for acceptable worship. We're studying the book of Exodus. We'll continue to look at that if you would. Go with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 8 to begin with, the book of Leviticus. Now, we skip over a great deal, but there are still some, some uh, circumstances where false worship was offered and God rejected it. But I want you to see this one. Leviticus chapter 8 and chapter 9. Chapter 8 is the consecration of the Levites. Aaron uh, and his sons. And we're going to learn more about his sons in just a moment. So we're not going to read that at all. You will find that Moses, also a Levite, killed the sacrifice as the sacrifices were made. Verse 30, it says, he took some of the anointing oil, some of the blood which was on the altar. He sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons. On the garments of his sons with him, he consecrated Aaron, his garments, his sons, the garments of his sons with him. Chapter 9, the priestly, um, the priesthood is instituted and the work of the priest begins. Chapter 10. Now, immediately after the consecration in acceptable worship, then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, these are guys, these are young guys that had just gone through the consecration of the priest and began the priestly ministry. They didn't like 
the instruction. So they did something else. We're not told what they did, but apparently it's pretty vile because the fire went out from the Lord, devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses goes to Aaron, tells him about this. By those who come near to me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. I took your sons, Aaron, because they offered profane fire. Some think they were, they were inebriated, inebriated or drunk, or some think that they were involved in some type of, um, uh, involved with harlots while they were preparing to uh, offer sacrifice. Whatever it was, the Lord took their lives. It's serious. In the New Testament, which we've just seen, in John 4, Jesus, in grace, starts a conversation with a Samaritan woman that ends in her conversion, thankfully. But not before he convicts her of her sin and her improper worship. There is instruction always with our conversion. Now, Samaria, go with me to 1 Kings 12. We're going to look at a couple of passages, and this we'll close with this morning. After Solomon died, his son, Rehoboam, reigned in the last united kingdom, Israel and Judah. And there was uh, basically a civil war that ensued, and we see some of that in uh, 1 Kings chapter 12. But look at beginning in verse 25. You have Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, that remained in Judah, that remained, who remained in Jerusalem. And you have Jeroboam, who led a coalition of rebellious people, rebels. Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, which is north of Jerusalem. And he dwelt there. Also, he went out from there and built uh, Penuel and Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. I don't want this to happen. So we're going to establish a new place to worship in the north or north of Jerusalem. Therefore, the king asked advice. Make two calves of gold. Sound familiar? Is it too much for you to go to Jerusalem? Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, which is just north of, uh, of uh, Jerusalem, and the other in Dan, which is way north, beyond the Sea of Galilee. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines in the high places and made priests for every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. He ordained a feast on the 15th of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah. He offered sacrifices on the altar. He did this at Bethel, sacrifices to the calves that he had made. He installed the priest. He does all of this against the instruction of God. This is Samaria. This is where Samaria comes from. Now, go to 2 Kings chapter 17. A lot of time passes now. A lot of time. 
Jeroboam is long gone, but he's not forgotten. A long passage, I'm not going to read it all this morning. We'll perhaps come back and look at it uh, again. Verse 5. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land. This is about um, from where we were in uh, First Kings. This is probably about 300 years, 250 to 300 years. And he went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. Amos prophesied this, others as well. And the ninth year of Hashiah, the king of Assyria, took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria or Samaria and placed them in uh, Halah by the Habor, the river of Gozan, in the cities of the Medes. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel that they made. The children of Israel secretly did against the Lord, their God, the things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their cities, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden uh, images on every high hill and under every green tree. They burned incense on all the high places, like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them, and they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger, for they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear. They stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. Verse 19. Well, verse 18. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. But Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God. But walked in the statutes of Israel, which they made, and the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hands of the plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. He tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat the king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is this day. The next Sunday morning I will open with the last portion of Second Kings chapter 17 because it is very telling about America. 
because people don't change. There's a proper way to worship. There's an improper way to worship. And the key is, whenever we arrive at a point to where we say, I don't like this particular portion of Scripture, then there becomes a problem. I don't like something, just fill in the blanks. It is difficult to follow and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth when we harbor, as the Pharisees did, anger in our hearts against what is required, or we harbor in our hearts what Cain did, anger against his brother, because he offered a proper sacrifice. So as we move ahead, we're going to begin to examine what happens to Samaria and why Jesus, the first part of John 4 says Jesus needed to go to Samaria. Why Jesus instructs this lady about who he is and also how she is to worship him. The Lord loves, he desires a restoration in Samaria. Remember the good Samaritan? He desires a restoration in Samaria as much as in Judah. He desires a restoration in the hearts of unsaved sinners as much as he desires it in the hearts of saved sinners. So when we see all this verbiage, yes, this is the way the Lord dealt with Israel, but he sent his son to save a woman that would be a testimony to Samaria. That's the God that we serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the word. We thank you for the admonition. And as we move ahead, Lord, we pray that you would give us insight into um, our desire in our spirits, united with your spirit and in the truth of the word of God, to, to exalt your name, to uh, to observe these ordinances, as in just a moment we will observe the Lord's Supper, which indeed is one of the models of true worship. We pray that you'd have your sweet will, your divine way, the remainder of the service this morning. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. We're going to sing one verse of a closing hymn this morning, and if you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you may have been attempting to worship Him in a number of ways, and coming to the house of the Lord is a good thing. But yet and still, until your heart is changed by the Spirit of God, that's just unacceptable worship. The desire is that your heart be changed, and then we will learn how we are to praise the Lord. We're going to sing a verse. If the Lord's spoken to you and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior this morning, we can't save you, but with an open Bible, we can lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and you can leave here today with that assurance of being born again 
being born from above by this Jesus, same Jesus that spoke to this woman at the well. All, need, all you need to do is step out of the pew. We can, again, take you to a private prayer room, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. One of the prerequisites of the Lord's Supper, obviously, is you need to be born again. But the second one is you need to be obedient and follow the Lord and believe his baptism. That is a prerequisite. And all we need to do is go and read Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you know the Lord, but you haven't been obedient and following him as uh, in believer's baptism, we encourage you to do that this morning and as a child of God. When we look at all of these, we say, well, that was so many years ago, and that was this, and that was this, and hey, I am the Lord, I change not. So keep that in mind. What number are we going to sing, brother? 285. 285. The Lord's spoken to you. Won't you come and sing?